Gospel of Luke. Well, uh, does that scroll through, Dulcie? We'll just check that it scrolls. Go to the next one. We'll just give it a moment. You've got to click on it and then scroll it. See if you can figure it out. There we go. Now, yep, that's good. Okay, well, some of you know that, um, that I'm a Sharky fan, uh, a long-suffering Sharky fan until uh, 2016 when we finally won the comp. And uh, I don't care if they ever win another game again, okay, because we won the comp and that's, that's all we had to do after so many years. But um, just moving on, uh, this is Preston Campbell. I just want to tell you a story about a, a bad experience I had as a Sharky fan, although it was generally a bad experience. Um, Preston Campbell was the Dally M winner uh, in 2001. He was amazing. You should have seen him sidestep and run. He was brilliant. And then uh, the next one, this new coach, Chris Anderson, comes along in the next slide, if you can get up there. And Chris Anderson brings his best bud, Brett Kamali, to the Sharks, and he dumps Preston Campbell. And we were all really grumpy Shark fans, I can tell you. Because Preston Campbell went on and won the comp with Penrith the year after. Uh, but the question for us Sharky fans was, was Kamali really fit to be our halfback? Was he really fit to be the saviour of the Sharkies? Well, uh, it took us 16 more years to win, so maybe the answer was no. Uh, well, uh, today, thankfully, we're not uh, talking all morning about the footy, uh, but about the Bible, Luke's Gospel, and we're in Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. And the question is, is Jesus fit to be the saviour? Is Jesus fit to be the Messiah? Or will he be an imposter like Brett Kamali uh, in this passage Will Jesus show in this passage that he is fit to save us from our sin? Well, let's get into it. Have a look at uh, Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So we've seen his baptism there at the end of Luke chapter 3. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus at his baptism. We see there that full of the Holy Spirit, he returns from the Jordan to Galilee. And then what happens? Led by the Spirit, he goes out into the wilderness. You see, this is God's plan, isn't it? that this would happen. He's led by God, led by the Spirit, out into the wilderness to face the devil. Have a look at verse 2. It says, he was out there for 40 days, for 40 days out in that wilderness. Now, um, I don't know if you can remember, how long was Israel in the desert after they left Egypt? 40 years. That's right. 40 years Israel was in the desert on the way to the promised land. This is no coincidence that Jesus was gone for 40 days. Jesus is mimicking Israel's experience. He's coming in and he's saying, I am Israel. 
and I'm going to show you how it's truly done. Now, who tempts Jesus? It's the devil. Who tempted Adam in the garden? The devil. So Jesus then, this is no coincidence, Jesus mimics Adam's experience in the garden. He's going to succeed where Adam failed in the garden and where Israel failed in the desert. Where they failed, is Jesus going to succeed? Now remember the horror of this situation. The physical pain, the emotional pain that he would have been in. He had fasted that time. He was desperately hungry. Okay, imagine what that would have been like. And then after all of that, look at who he had to hang out with for that time. Forty days with Satan himself, hungry and in the wilderness. Jesus was behind the eight ball here, wasn't he? Could he really survive this? How would he go? So uh, in this passage here, we see three huge temptations for Jesus. Number one, look at verse three. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now remember, Jesus was really hungry and the devil starts talking to him about carbs Now, if we remember our Bible history, do you remember when Israel was in the wilderness? What did God provide for them to eat? Bread from heaven and the manna. And what's Jesus going to go on and do later in the gospel? What's he going to do for those thousands, that 5,000 by the lake? He's going to give them bread and fish. So why wouldn't Jesus just... Tell the stone to become bread. He can do it. God can do it. Recently at our place, Mel's been making sourdough and uh, it's been very tasty. There's nothing better than a nice home-cooked sourdough with, I'm showing my um, personality here, with some peanut butter and jam. (laughs) Okay. Sensational. So some bread for Jesus would have been really good about then, wouldn't it? But Jesus is the faithful son of God. Jesus is on a mission, on God's mission, coming into the world to save the world. And as the faithful son, he's got a trust in the father. He's not going to take things on his own steam and do it his way and not trust in his Lord. Now He's got a trust in God's plan for him. He knows God's not going to abandon him because he's on God's mission after all. He's got to trust in God to provide for him. If God wants to give him bread, God will give him bread. He doesn't just need to do it because the devil says so. Think about how Adam and Eve slipped up. They grasped for what wasn't theirs to grasp for. They didn't trust in the Lord, but they grasped for what they weren't meant to get. What will Jesus do? Will he trust in the Lord? 
Well, look at verse 4. He says, It is written, man does not live on bread alone. And that's uh, the first of three quotes from Deuteronomy that Jesus quotes back at the devil. Deuteronomy from the law of God. The people of God were meant to trust in the word of God, the law of God. They were meant to, to have it in their hearts. And Jesus is showing that he is that true, faithful servant of God who lives by the word. The quote goes, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, that's temptation number one. What about number two in verses five to seven? It says, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. He's a dodgy character, isn't he, that devil? He's trying to get God to worship him, the one who created him. He's trying to get to worship him. He's a shocker, isn't he? Look at what Jesus replies in verse 8. He says, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Once again, the true servant of God, the true son of God, is going back to the word of God. Living by the word. He has the word in his heart. He's showing us how it's meant to be done. And when we face our temptations that we are to fall back on God's word and let it nourish us and live by the word. Temptation number three, in verses nine to ten. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, um, so Jesus is taken to the highest point of the temple, it says there. Now, that might have been at the top of that door there, which was the holy place. It's pretty high there. But it also might have been um, on one of the corners of the temple in Jerusalem, it hung out over a cliff and so there was a big drop uh, down to the bottom. It was said by historians that people who went up to that corner looked over and got really dizzy as they looked at the big drop below. And look at verse 10. The devil quotes the Bible back at Jesus. He's quoting Psalm 91 about how God promises to protect his servants. Isn't the devil a shocker? He's quoting the Bible back at the Lord. The devil knows the Bible pretty well. As uh, it says uh, later in the Gospels, even the demons believe in God and shudder. So what's going to happen? He's trying to get Jesus to test God. Trying to get Jesus not to trust in his Father. And we see once again, Jesus has the word in his heart. 
he goes back to the word. Look at verse 12. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament again. And see in verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time, which is later in the Gospels, as uh, he sees his chance for Jesus to be betrayed by Judas. So what's the big idea of this passage today? I think it's this, at the temptation of Jesus, Jesus remained obedient at the point where Adam and Israel had failed. Adam failed and was cast out of the garden. Israel failed and was cast out of the land. Jesus goes to the wilderness and he's obedient. He's obedient to his father at the point where Adam and Israel had failed. That's the point of the temptation, I think. But what difference does this make for our lives? What difference does this make, this temptation story? If you can get that picture up there of the uh, kids... Um, as you heard in the prayer, scripture is about to begin and we're looking forward to teaching scripture this year. But uh, the scripture kids um, can be a bit naughty sometimes to their scripture teachers. And um, I'm sure the teachers in our congregation would resonate with uh, kids being naughty at times. See, so why is it important that Jesus was obedient to God? It's because we've been naughty little kids. Yes, we've been the naughty little adults, haven't we? We've been the sinners. That's why it was important that Jesus was the obedient one, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because we couldn't obey. We needed someone else to come in and obey for us. You see, what is the solution to those of us who've broken the covenant with God? It wasn't just Adam or Israel, it's us. We've broken that covenant of works. We've broken, we haven't lived a perfect life. So what is the solution for those who break the covenant and stand under God's judgment? The solution is Jesus, the true covenant servant the one who represents us before God, the perfect one who stands in our place. Jesus died for us to take our sin away, but did you know that he also lived for us? He lived the perfect life representing you and me so that we can be righteous before God. Death to take away our sins and life to earn our righteousness before God. That's what justification is. We are justified. Jesus' perfect life is given in our place and we're given a clean record with God. It's also described in the Bible as this word imputation and uh, those of you with accounting backgrounds might resonate with that. It's accounting language. The word impute 
means to transfer something from one account to another, if you can get the next picture up. It's an accounting word. Not Jesus' money, but Jesus' good works transferred from his account to mine, to yours, imputed, transferred, reckoned to you, the perfect record of Jesus given to you. It's a funds transfer of righteousness from Jesus to you so that God sees you as perfect in his eyes because Christ was perfect. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Um, a few years ago, I'm not sure if it was for Christmas or my birthday, but uh, Mel's dad wanted to transfer me $100 and he made a mistake and transferred me $10,000. <laughs> and I said to Mel, find us keepers, man. <laughs> and unfortunately, she gave him back 9900 <laughs> It was a great transfer. Friends, what about the gospel? It's a better transfer, better than winning the jackpot. Getting the perfect righteousness of Jesus slapped onto your record. When God looks at you, he sees the transfer, he sees the imputation. He sees Jesus' obedience representing you. Your sin is gone through the cross Your righteousness comes through the perfect life of Christ, imputed, transferred into your account. What a saviour. He stood the test. He faced that horrible trial here in Luke 4 and through his whole life. He remained obedient. He succeeded. He never sinned where everyone else has failed. The Lord Jesus, our Lord, our faithful Lord, the true covenant servant, the one who represents you, the one you hold on to to know that you are acceptable before God because he was. Yes, our Lord Jesus, our righteousness. Who are you relying on for your standard standing before God? Yourself? Your own works? (laughs) Don't do that, it'll never work. No, we rely on the Saviour, the faithful one, Jesus, who died and lived for us. There's a great story about um, the uh, American pastor and scholar, J. Gresham Machen, back in the 1930s. Um, He was a teacher at this famous Bible college called Princeton Seminary, but the college went liberal and stopped believing in the Bible, so he went, all right, we're going, and we'll start another Bible college called Westminster Seminary. So he started that, and he left the Presbyterian Church, because the church then was dodgy in America, and he he joined the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So he's a great man... um, for, for biblical authority back then, Machen. But the, the story I want to tell you about him was uh, when he was on his deathbed, he sent a telegram to his friend. He knew he was going to die, and he sent these words to his friend. He said, So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. 
Is that true for you? Let us pray. Our Lord, our Father, we thank you that your Son came into the world and lived the perfect life, died our death, and rose again victorious, acceptable to you, that united with him we might be as well. Lord, help us to put our trust in no other source but Jesus Christ. Amen.